Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. I remember trying to compare everything I was experiencing to American movies I had seen. Like, okay, where's Bruce Willis? I can't find him. Where are all these people? You know, Sioux Falls, South Dakota is very different from from Syria. Ahmed Badr became a refugee as a young kid. Like him around the world, 7.1 million school-aged children are refugees. Although Badr witnessed serious destruction and devastation, he doesn't define himself by his displacement alone. Well, first, I think you have to realize that you have a story to tell, and then you have to realize how you can tell that story. As Bader entered high school, he started to explore his identity more and more. I started to kind of grapple with what it meant to you know, be an Iraqi American Muslim refugee. It was just a beginning. Yes, he realized he was a refugee, and yes, he was displaced, but he was also a poet and later a college graduate. He began to carve out a space where all the parts of his identity could coexist. As a young person, publishing is this thing that's so exclusive and this thing that's only the few of us get access to. And I thought, okay, well, design the website. And then it started by just me begging my classmates to submit. Bader's website expanded, and then it evolved into a platform called Neradio. Today, Neradio publishes work from 18 different countries and boasts partnerships with the UN and the Met that created spaces for displaced young people to feel that they can transcend the tragedy that may have initially caused their displacement. A generation of people transcending the stereotypes put upon them. Bader has compiled their stories and poems into a new book. It's called While the Earth Sleeps, We Travel. In moving from Baghdad to Syria to South Dakota and later Houston, Texas, Bader realized his story was weighty, but that didn't mean it had to weigh him down. We're faced with a negativity loop when we hear the word refugee. 
We immediately think of uh, pain. We immediately think of tragedy. But by creating spaces where refugees themselves can go from passive victims to individuals who have full control of their stories, this is solvable. My co-host Ann Applebaum spoke with Botter about his platform, the radio, and how he's helping young people around the world see their own potential and put it into words. So this poem is in the middle of the book, um, and uh, it's called Our Earth and Yours. I wrote this a couple years ago. Our Earth and Yours. Some boats ask the sea's permission before sailing. Others have no choice but to introduce themselves hurriedly, forcefully, holding bodies that tell stories in dark rooms, over rusty space heaters and pristine rugs. They say that a country lives inside a body, but it will always die outside of it. What is a border but a stubborn scar? A past pain that no longer persists, but a reminder that you will never return to your previous form. Permanence is an illusion we are forbidden to taste. My name is Ahmed Badr. I'm an Iraqi-American writer, social entrepreneur, and former refugee, and on July 25th, 2006, uh, our home in Baghdad was bombed. I wasn't home. I was away at my grandparents and I uh, came home the next day and, and you know, found, found out what happened. Luckily, everyone survived. It was a, a dud missile. And then, you know, a week later, we moved to Syria, which was taken in refugees at the time. This, this was before the war, to be clear. Yes, this was between yes. 2006 and 2008. We were going back and forth between Syria and, and Iraq just to visit family. My parents were on paid leave. You know, they were civil engineers in, in Baghdad for over 20 years. Um, and then during one of those trips, we heard about this UN program that would resettle refugees. Um, and my dad thought we really don't have, you know, anything to lose. And he applied. And uh, we were very lucky to be among, you know, the, just the 1% of all refugees that are resettled. And uh, we landed in the U.S. on May 19, 2008. So after two years in Syria, we left Iraq in 2006 and uh, flew out from Damascus and to Budapest and then Budapest, New York City, and then New York City to Chicago and then Chicago finally to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That must have been very jarring, that transition from Iraq to Syria to South Dakota. You know, it was exciting. What was it? Yeah, 2008. So it was just nine going on 10. And that age is so exciting because you're just a sponge. You just want to take everything in. And I remember trying to compare everything I was experiencing to American movies I had seen. You know, I had seen all these action movies with Bruce Willis and, and all of these kind of films that framed how I understood America to be. And all of a sudden, you know, we spent a night in New York City before flying out to Chicago. And I was just like, okay, where's Bruce Willis? I can't find him. Where are all these people? But it was exciting. It was exciting. Obviously, it was a completely new place. You know, Sioux Falls, South Dakota is very different from, from Syria and we were living there. But um, I was eager to kind of just dive in and, and meet people and, and get a chance to, to connect. My English wasn't really great at the time. I had taken some classes in Syria, so I had to adapt quickly. But you never felt any sense of displacement? Initially, I don't think I understood what displacement meant um, or my own relationship to it. But I thought, well, this is just a new place we're moving to. But I think as I got older, as I started high school, I started to kind of grapple with what it meant to you know, be an Iraqi American Muslim refugee. I was like, we call this immigration. We call this you know, moving from one place to another. We call this displacement. 
Did you feel at that time, or or do you think about this now, that the either that a kind of a stereotype was being thrust upon you? You know, you are a Muslim refugee at a time when people are worried about Muslim refugees. Did you have to grapple with that? Did you did you disagree with being typecast that way? I think I didn't realize what I was up against in terms of those identities until I actually started to realize uh, how I can claim them and how I can express them and, and maneuver and, and, and negotiate uh, each of them and their intersections and their tensions. So for you, telling stories was initially a way to solve this personal problem, this personal question of how you fit in. Exactly. It was a way of asking, okay, well, what is my personal story? And then how can I share it? And who will listen? And once I figured out that folks were interested in hearing it, then I quickly learned, you know, how I could begin to tell it. And then that's how the journey began. How did you get from that personal realization, from the understanding that stories would help you, to the founding of Narratio, which is designed to help other people tell their stories? The summer after my freshman year, uh, I was invited to a conference in D.C., a journalism conference. And for the conference, they said, you have to make a, a website or a blog for your work. And this was the first time that I realized that me trying to figure out what it meant to be an Iraqi American Muslim refugee was actually of interest to other people who were either going through the same thing or were just interested in what that exploration meant. And so from there, I thought, okay, well, I want to explore this and I'm going to do that through my writing and through my poetry and through um, this kind of initial website. And then that website that they had us create for for that conference, um, all of a sudden I had classmates asking me about it, reading the work and saying, okay, well, I didn't know that this is what it meant to be an Iraqi American Muslim refugee, or I didn't know about you know, that specific aspect of those identities. And all of a sudden I thought, okay, well, this was good and this was, you know, empowering, but why not make it something that's available to other young people? And then in uh, my junior year of high school, I decided, okay, well, let me start a website where I can invite other young people to publish their work, whether that's poems, whether that's stories, whether that's artwork or films, and have a space that cultivates this force, this creative force of young people, and to make it publishing accessible to them. Uh, and then it grew to do uh, to workshops. And so the very first Naritia workshop I did here in Houston with a local resettlement agency, I met with an amazing group of recently arrived refugee youth. And we talked about stories. We talked about our own stories, the ways that we can share them. But ultimately, that workshop was the first time I was able to go beyond my own story and think about the spaces that my own story can create for other stories to exist beside it and beyond it. Narratio kind of the, came out of this realization that we need to make publishing accessible. And then now it's grown to include, you know, not only just the online publishing, but also a fellowship program that we have in partnership with the Met, um, you know, uh, different partnerships with the UN, different collaborations. And now we publish work from 18 countries and, and you know, the work, the work has grown. And what is the problem that this site is designed to solve? How would you describe it? Is it the problem of people feeling displaced or are there, are there other kinds of issues you're trying to get to? What it's really trying to do is allow for a space that allows displaced young people to share the fullest extent of their experiences on their own terms. What oftentimes tends to happen when we think of uh, stories of displacement or the stories of those that happen to be displaced, we think of war, we think of violence, we think of 
you know, persecution. And that's definitely part of the story, but that's all we hear about. With Narratio, we wanted to create a platform and, and a series of initiatives that created spaces for dis displaced young people to feel that they can transcend the tragedy that may have initially caused their displacement. And so for the fellowship specifically, the first year was focused on poetry. And so I spent some time in, in Syracuse, I met with the fellows for the month, organized a series of, of workshops in partnership with the university there and, and the Ancient Near East Gallery at the Met. Um, and the co-director for the program was a professor at Syracuse, uh, Professor Bryce Nordquist, an amazing, amazing human. And what we did was each fellow selected an object from the ancient Near East galleries and reimagined their labels as a poem, but taking into account their own personal stories, their own personal identities. And then they got to perform those poems at the Royal Assyrian Court in those galleries by the end of the summer. And that program has continued. They've been able to perform their work um, at the UN. They've had a, a photography exhibit and a performance at Christie's in addition to you know local performances and exhibits in Syracuse. And so we're really trying to create a collective of cultural producers that then can take control of their own stories and redefine the kind of the singular narrative that, you know, is dominant around displacement, which tends to focus on tragedy. Explain to me why the dominant tragedy narrative is a problem. How does it trouble people? How does it affect them? The dominant narrative that's limited by the tragedy really ends up creating this story of victimhood, a story that's limited by victimhood. And we have to be able to move beyond that. But we have to be able to move beyond it by asking those very individuals how they want to be able to share their stories. We can't just have an agenda and then say, oh, this is where your story fits in or your story of tragedy fits in. We have to meet folks where they're at, ask them about the fullest extent of their experiences, and then ask them how they want to be able to represent themselves. What's the risk for young people who don't have this kind of opportunity? Well, first, I think you have to realize that you have a story to tell, and then you have to realize how you can tell that story. What you're risking, uh, if that doesn't happen, is, again, that narrative of tragedy being becoming the dominant one. And also, there's so much personal development that happens once you realize that you have something to share with the world and that you are in control of what you want to share with the world. And also want to be clear that not everyone, you know, should be forced to tell their own stories. That's another aspect of this. This is an invitation rather than a mandate, right? This is something that we try to kind of offer. And then if it's something that's of interest, then, you know, we, we work with those young people. But if, again, this work and, and, and this mission is really aimed at providing these spaces and then opening up opportunities for those spaces and those individuals to grow on their own. And again, ownership and, and agency is at the heart of this work. Um, your new book, While the Earth Sleeps, We Travel, is a collection of poetry and prose. Some is by you, some by fellow young refugees. Tell me about how you chose the pieces for the book and how you organized it. Yeah. So beginning in 2018, I started traveling to, to Greece and Trinidad and Tobago and across the U.S., but mainly in Syracuse, really doing storytelling workshops and interviews with displaced young people in camps, outside of camps, and really asking this fundamental question of how do you see yourself and how do you think the world sees you? And what's that relationship between those two questions and how would you define it through your own perspective medium? Do you want to write a poem? Do you want to share a photograph? Do you want to share a painting? Now, in terms of the process of, of how it came to be, 
you know, it was a year of, of the collection process and then about a year just trying to figure out the, the structure of it. You know, how do you fit a drawing by a six-year-old girl with, you know, an interview and a, a series of photographs or paintings by a 23-year-old man, you know, from all different parts of the world? Uh, you know, there's a series of uh, my own poems that are structured throughout as a mediating force between, you know, all of the pieces represented. And so it's a really multimodal collection that's been the labor of love for the last couple of years. And I'm very, very excited to share with the world. Do you think that the effect both of your book and your work and of, of course, of Naradio is, um, is likely to have an impact on the narrative itself? Do you want to change the way society speaks more broadly about refugees? Or is the point really to help the refugees themselves? I think we can do both. I think one amplifies the other. Uh, you know, the mission is to create this global collective of displaced young people that are, you know, trained to tell their own stories on their own terms as stakeholders in their communities, as leaders, uh, as cultural producers. And we hope that by doing that work, then we can change the narrative. What do you think readers will gain both from the book and from the material that's produced on the radio? I hope that readers realize that kind of this distance we assume when we hear that ref that word refugee, the distance between our experiences and theirs is actually m much less than we think it is. There are issues that folks who happen to be displaced have experienced that anyone can relate to, regardless if, they, if they've experienced displacement or not. Whether it's my own parents struggling to find jobs, even though they had master's degrees in civil engineering, or, you know, me and my younger sister trying to figure out, you know, just being high school students and, and where we fit in and, and our own identities and negotiating those identities. These are all struggles that are universal and, and we can all relate to in some way, shape or form. Critically, the book is not about displacement. It's just about the expression, the creative expression of young people who happen to be displaced. It's a key distinction that I, that I hope is clear and that I hope, you know, folks would uh, appreciate. What are three things that listeners could do themselves to support the livelihoods of displaced people, to support the integration of refugees, maybe in their own communities? So first, I think, you know, think about the stories that you've heard about refugees, either, you know, in the news or in, in your own community. Think about the experiences you've had with folks that you've met and really critically examine how that presentation is, is happening. And then from there, reimagine what comes to mind when you hear that word refugee. You know, uh, it doesn't have to be this thing that's always so far away. It could be a neighbor. It could be someone that your kid goes to school with, a coworker. And then lastly, I think just learning to lead with, with your own personal experience. If you meet someone that happens to be displaced, or if you happen to be highlighting the experiences of someone that happens to be displaced for an event that you're holding, allow that individual the space and the opportunity to speak beyond the tragedy that may have been part of their story. Those three things are really key as we think about displacement, the narratives around displacement, and really this mission to create a three-dimensional approach to how we think about displacement, how we think about migration, and how we think about refugees. Ahmed Badr is the founder of Neradio. You can find more information about his new book, While the Earth Sleeps, We Travel, at earthsleepswetravel.com. Remember to check out our show notes to learn more. Solvable is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our show is produced by Camille Baptista, senior producer Jocelyn Frank, 
Catherine Girardot is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Special thanks go to Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Carly Migliori, and Khadijah Holland. I'm Jacob Weisberg. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.